16. And keeps the nails from ingrowing. Shoes that pinch the toes should, of course, not be worn. Page 238. Figure 124. Figure 124. Proper method of trimming nails of toes. Care of the hair. Occasional washing of the hair is beneficial, but too much wetting causes decay of the hair roots, which leads to its falling out. The worst enemy of the hair is dandruff. A method of removing dandruff which is highly recommended is that of rubbing olive oil into the scalp and later of removing this with a cleansing shampoo. The olive oil is placed on the scalp with a medicine dropper and thoroughly rubbed in with the fingers. After three or four hours the hair is washed with soap and water any good toilet soap will do and rinsed with pure water. The hair is then dried, the surplus water being removed with a coarse towel, where the dandruff is very troublesome. This treatment may be given once or twice a week, but in mild cases once a month is sufficient. Massage of the scalp, by increasing the circulation at the hair roots, is beneficial, but irritation by a fine tooth comb, a stiff hairbrush, or by other means should be avoided. Frequent brushing and combing, however, are necessary both for the good appearance of the hair and for spreading the oil secreted by the glands at the hair roots. Summary. The skin forms the external covering of the body and also serves additional purposes. It is a most important agency in adapting the body to its physical surroundings, as shown by the part which it plays in the regulation of the body temperature. The skin should be kept clean and active, and skin wounds, even though small, should be guarded against infection. Exercises. 1. Name an example of each of the protective coverings of the body. 2. Compare the dermis and the epidermis with reference to thickness composition, and function. 3. To what is the color of the skin due? How is the color of the skin affected by the sunlight? 4. What modifications of the epidermis are found on our bodies? What are found on the body of a chicken? 5. What different kinds of protection are provided by the skin? 6. How does the perspiration cool the body? 7. What change occurs in the circulation in the skin when the body is becoming too cold, when becoming too warm? What is the purpose of these changes? 8. How does alcohol cause one to feel warm when he may be losing too much of his heat? 9. What precautions should be observed by one in poor health? In taking a bath? 10. How may the cold bath be a means of improving the general health? Practical work observations on the skin and its appendages. Examine the palm of the hand with a lens. Note the small ridges which correspond to the rows of papillae beneath the cuticle. In these fine small pits which are the openings of the sweat glands. 2. Examine the epidermis on the back of the hand and palm, that which places it thickest and most resisting. Is it of uniform thickness over the palm? Try picking it with a pin at the thickest place, noting if pain is felt. Inference. 3. Examine a fingernail. Is the free edge or the root the thickest? Trim closely the thumbnail and the nail of the middle finger of one hand and try to pick up a pin, or other minute object, from a smooth, hard surface. The result indicates what use of the nails, suggest other uses. 4. Examine with a microscope under a low power hairs from a variety of animals, as the horse, dog, cat, etc. Noting peculiarities of form and surface, to illustrate cooling effects of evaporation. 1. Wet the back of the hand and move it through the air to hasten evaporation. Observe that, as the hand dries, a sensation of cold is felt. Repeat the experiment, using ether alcohol, or Vaseline instead of the water, noting the differences in results, these liquids evaporate faster than water, 2, wet the bulb of a thermometer with alcohol or water, move it through the air to hasten evaporation, note and account for the fall of the mercury, 
Chapter XVII Structure of the Nervous System Coordination and Adjustment If we consider for a moment the movements of the body, we cannot fail to note the cooperation of organs, one with another. In the simple act of wiggling a stick one hand holds the stick and the other the knife, while the movements of each hand are such as to aid in the wiggling process. Examples of cooperation are also found in the taking of food, in walking, and in the performance of different kinds of work. Not only is cooperation found among the external organs, but our study of the vital processes has shown that the principle of cooperation is carried out by the internal organs as well. The fact that all the activities of the body are directed toward a common purpose makes the cooperation of its parts a necessity. The term, coordination, is employed to express this cooperation, or working together, of the different parts of the body. A further study of the movements of the body shows that many of them have particular reference to things outside of it. In going about one naturally avoids obstructions, and if anything is in the way he walks around or steps over it. Somewhat as a delicate instrument the microscope for example is altered or adjusted, in order to adapt it to its work. The parts of the body, and the body as a whole, have to be adjusted to their surroundings. This is seen in the attitude assumed in sitting and in standing in the position of the hands for different kinds of work, in the variations of the circulation of the blood in the skin, and in the movements for protecting the body. 95 Work of the Nervous System How are the different activities of the body controlled and coordinated? How is the body adjusted to its surroundings? The answer is found in the study of the nervous system. Briefly speaking, the nervous system controls, coordinates, and adjusts the different parts of the body by fulfilling two conditions. 1. It provides a complete system of connections throughout the body, thereby bringing all parts into communication. 2. It supplies a means of controlling action the so-called impulse which it passes along the nervous connections from one part of the body to another. The present chapter deals with the first of these conditions, the chapter following, with the second, the nerve skeleton. If all the other tissues are removed, leaving only the nervous tissue, a complete skeleton outline of the body still remains, this nerve skeleton as it has been called, has the general form of the framework of bones, but differs from it greatly in the fineness of its structures and the extent to which it represents every portion of the body. An examination of a nerve skeleton, or a diagram of one figure 125, shows the main structures of the nervous system and their connection with the different parts of the body. Corresponding to the skull and the spinal column is a central nervous axis, made up of two parts, the brain and the spinal cord. From the central axis white, cord-like bodies emerge and pass to different parts of the body. These are called nerve trunks, and the smaller branches into which they divide are called nerves. The nerves also undergo division until they terminate as fine thread-like structures in all parts of the body. The distribution of nerve terminations, however, is not uniform, as might be supposed, but the skin and important organs like the heart, stomach, and muscles are the more abundantly supplied. On many of the nerves are small rounded masses, called ganglia, and from many of these small nerves also emerge, at certain places the nerves and ganglia are so numerous as to form a kind of network, known as a plexus, figure 125 figure 125 diagram of nerve skeleton, the illustration shows the extent and general arrangement of the nervous tissue, A brain, B spinal cord, and nerve trunks and nerves, G ganglia. It is through these structures brain and spinal cord, nerve trunks and nerves, ganglia and nerve terminations that connections are established between all parts of the body, but more especially between the surface of the body and the organs within. The neurons, or nerve cells, 
while it makes the examination of the nerve skeleton is sufficient to show the connection of the nervous system with all parts of the body. No amount of study of its growth structures reveals the nature of its connections or suggests its method of operation. Insight into the real nature of the nervous system is obtained only through a study of its minute structural elements. These, instead of being called cells, as in the case of the other tissues, are called neurons. The use of this term, instead of the simpler one of nerve cell, is the result of recent advances in our knowledge of the nervous system. 96 figure 126 figure 126 diagram of a monaxonic neuron greatly enlarged except as to a length. The central thread in the axon is the axis cylinder. The neurons are in all respects cells. They differ widely, however, from all the other cells of the body and are, in some respects, the most remarkable of all cells. They are characterized by minute extensions, or prolongations, which in some instances extend to great distances. Though the neurons in certain parts of the body differ greatly in form and size from those in other parts of the body, most of them may be included in one or the other of two classes, known as monaxonic neurons and diaxonic neurons. Monaxonic neurons. Neurons of this class consist of three distinct parts, known as the cell body, the dendrites, and the axon figure 126. The cell body has in itself the form of a complete cell and was at one time so described. It consists of a rounded mass of protoplasm, containing a well-defined nucleus. The protoplasm is similar to that of other cells, but is characterized by the presence of many small granules and has a slightly grayish color. The dendrites are short extensions from the cell body. They branch somewhat as the roots of a tree and form in many instances a complex network of tiny rootlets. Their protoplasm, like that of the cell body, is more or less granular. The dendrites increase greatly the surface of the cell body to which they are related in function. The axon, or nerve fiber, is a long, slender extension from the cell body, which connects with some organ or tissue. It was at one time described as a distinct nervous element, but later study has shown it to be an outgrowth from the cell body. The monaxonic neurons are so called from their having but a single axon. The axonic neurons, neurons belonging to this class have each a well-defined cell body and two axons but no parts just like the dendrites of monaxonic neurons. The cell body is smooth and rounded, and its axons extend from it in opposite directions. Figure 127. Figure 127. Figure 127. Diagram of a deaxonic neuron. The diagram shows only the conducting portion of the axon, or axis cylinder. Structure of the axon. The axon, or nerve fiber, has practically the same structure in both classes of neurons being composed in most cases of three distinct parts, in the center, and running the entire length of the axon, is a thread-like body, called the axis cylinder figure 126. The axis cylinder is present in all axons and is the part essential to their work. It may be considered as an extension of the protoplasm from the cell body. Surrounding the axis cylinder is a thick, whitish-looking layer, known as the medullary sheath, and around this is a thin covering, called the primitive sheath or neurilemma. The medullary sheath and the primitive sheath are not, strictly speaking, parts of the nerve cell, but appear to be growths that have formed around it. Certain of the axons have no primitive sheath and others are without a medullary sheath. 97 for men length of axons. Where the axons terminate they usually separate into a number of small divisions, thereby increasing the number of their connections. Certain axons are also observed to give off branches before the place of termination is reached. Figure 131. These collateral branches, 
by distributing themselves in a manner similar to the main fiber, greatly extend the influence of a single neuron. In the matter of length, great variation is found among the axons in different parts of the body. In certain parts of the brain, for example, are fibers not more than one one hundredth of an inch in length, while the axons that pass all the way from the spinal cord to the toes had a length of more than three feet. Between these extremes practically all variations in length are found. Arrangements of the neurons. Nowhere in the body do the neurons exist singly, but they are everywhere connected with each other to form the different structures observed in the nerve skeleton. Two general plans of connection are to be observed, known as the anatomical and the physiological, or, more simply speaking, as the side-by-side and end-to-end plans. The side-by-side plan is seen in that disposition of the neurons which enables them to form the nerves and the ganglia, as well as the brain and spinal cord. The end-to-end connections are necessary to the work which the neurons do. Side-by-side connections. On separating the ganglia and nerves into their finest divisions, it is found that the nerves consist of axons, while the ganglia are made up mainly of cell bodies and dendrites. The axons lie side-by-side in the nerve, being surrounded by the same protective coverings while the cell bodies form a rounded mass or cluster, which is the ganglion figure 128. But the axons, in order to connect with the cell bodies, must terminate within the ganglion, so that they too form a part of it, to some extent. Also, axons pass through ganglia with which they make no connection. The neurons in the brain and spinal cord also lie side by side, but their arrangement is more complex than that in the nerves and ganglia. Figure 128 Figure 128 Diagrams illustrating arrangement of neurons. AB ganglia and short segments of nerves. 1. Ganglion. 2. Nerve. In the ganglion of our end-to-end connections of different neurons, in the ganglion of our the cell bodies of deaxonic neurons. See section of a nerve trunk. 1. Epineurium consisting chiefly of connective tissue. 2. Bundles of nerve fibers. 3. Covering a fiber bundle, or perineurium. 4. Small artery and vein. The side-by-side arrangement of the neurons shows clearly the structure of the ganglia and nerves. The nerve is seen to be a bundle of axons, or nerve fibers, held together by connective tissue. While the ganglion is little more than a cluster of cell bodies, their connection is necessarily very close, for the same group of neurons will form, with their axons, the nerve, and, with their cell bodies, the ganglion figure 128. End-to-end connections. These consist of loose end-to-end unions of the fiber branches of certain neurons with the dendrites of other neurons. The purpose of such connections is to provide the means of communication between different parts of the body. There appears to be no actual uniting of the fiber branches with the dendrites, but they come into a relation sufficiently close to establish conduction pathways, and these extend throughout the body figure 129. They connect all parts of the body with the brain and spinal cord while connections within the brain and cord bring the parts into communication with each other. Figure 129 Figure 129 Diagram of a nerve path starting at the skin, extending through the spinal cord, and passing out to muscles. A division of this path also reaches the brain. Nature of the nervous system. The nervous system represents the sum total of the neurons in the body. In some respects it may be compared to the modern telephone system. The neurons, like the electric wires, connect different places with a central station the brain and spinal cord, and through the central station connections are established between the different places in the system. As the separate wires are massed together to form cables, the neurons are massed to form the gross structures of the nervous system. 
the nervous system, however, is so radically different from anything found outside of the animal body that no comparison can give an adequate idea of it. We now pass to a study of the gross structures observed in the nerve skeleton. Divisions of the nervous system. While all of the nervous structures are very closely blended, forming one complete system for the entire body, this system presents different divisions which may, for convenience, be studied separately. As physiologists have become better acquainted with the human nervous system, different schemes of classification have been proposed. The following outline, based upon the location of the different parts, presents perhaps the simplest view of the entire group of nervous structures. Table the central division. This division of the nervous system lies within the cranial and spinal cavities, and consists of the brain and the spinal cord. The brain occupying the cranial cavity and the spinal cord in the spinal cavity connect with each other through the large opening at the base of the skull to form one continuous structure. The brain and cord are the most complicated portions of the nervous system, and the ones most difficult to understand. Figure 130 Figure 130 Diagram of Divisions of Brain The brain, the brain, which is the largest mass of nervous tissue in the body, weighs in the average sized man about 50 ounces, and in the average sized woman about 44 ounces. 98 It may be roughly divided into three parts, which are named from their positions in lower animals the forebrain the midbrain, and the hindbrain figure 130. The forebrain consists almost entirely of a single part, known as the cerebrum. The cerebrum comprises about seven-eighths of the entire brain, and occupies all the front, middle, back, and upper portions of the cranial cavity, spreading over and concealing, to a large extent, the parts beneath. The surface layer of the cerebrum is called the cortex. This is made up largely of cell bodies, and has a grayish appearance. 99 The cortex is greatly increased in area by the presence everywhere of ridge-like convolutions, between which are deep but narrow depressions, called fissures. The interior of the cerebrum consists mainly of nerve fibers, or axons, which give it a whitish appearance. These fibers connect with the cell bodies in the cortex figure 131. The cerebrum is a double organ, consisting of two similar divisions, called the cerebral hemispheres. These are separated by a deep groove extending from the front to the back of the brain, known as the median fissure. The hemispheres, however, are closely connected by a great band of underlying nerve fibers, called the corpus callosum. Figure 131 Figure 131 Microscope drawing of a neuron from cerebral cortex. A short segment of the axis cylinder with collateral branches. At the base of the cerebrum three large masses of cell bodies are to be found. One of these, a double mass occupies a central position between the hemispheres, and is called the optic thalami. The other two occupy front central positions at the base of either hemisphere, and are known as the corpus striatus, or the striate bodies. The midbrain is a short, rounded, and compact body that lies immediately beneath the cerebrum, and connects it with the hindbrain. On account of the great size of the cerebrum, the midbrain is entirely concealed from view when the other parts occupy their normal positions. However, if the cerebrum is pulled away from the hindbrain, it is brought into view somewhat as in figure 130. The midbrain carries upon its back and upper surface four small rounded masses of cell bodies, called the corpora quadrigamina. The upper two of these bodies are connected with the eyes, the lower two appear to have some connection with the organs of hearing. On the front and under surface, the midbrain separates slightly as if to form two pillars, which are called the crura cerebri, or cerebral peduncles. 
These contain the great bundles of nerve fibers that connect the cerebrum with the parts of the nervous system below. The hindbrain lies beneath the back portion of the cerebrum, and occupies the enlargement at the base of the skull. It forms about one-eighth of the entire brain, and is composed of three parts the cerebellum, the pons, and the bulb. The cerebellum is a flat and somewhat triangular structure with its upper surface fitting into the triangular undersurface of the back of the cerebrum. It is divided into three lobes a central lobe and two lateral lobes and weighs about two and one half ounces, in its general form and appearance, as well as in the arrangement of its cell bodies and axons. The cerebellum resembles the cerebrum. It differs from the cerebrum, however, in being more compact, and in having its surface covered with narrow, transverse ridges instead of the irregular and broader convolutions figure 132. The pons, or pons virolii, named from its supposed resemblance to a bridge, is situated in front of the cerebellum, and is readily recognized as a circular expansion which extends forward from that body. It consists largely of bands of nerve fibers, between which are several small masses of cell bodies. The fibers connect with different parts of the cerebellum and with parts above. Figure 132 Figure 132 Human brain viewed from below. C. Cerebrum. CB. Cerebellum. Emid brain. P. Pons. B. Bulb. Ixiri. Cranial nerves. The bulb. Or medulla oblongata. Island properly speaking. An enlargement of the spinal cord within the cranial cavity. It is somewhat triangular in shape. And lies immediately below the cerebellum. It contains important clusters of cell bodies as well as the nerve fibers that pass from the spinal cord to the brain. The spinal cord, this division of the central nervous system is about 17 inches in length and two-thirds of an inch in diameter. It does not extend the entire length of the spinal cavity, as might be supposed, but terminates at the lower margin of the first lumbar vertebra. 100 It connects at the upper end with the bulb, and terminates at the lower extremity in a number of large nerve roots which are continuous with the nerves of the hips and legs figure 133. Two deep fissures, one in front and the other at the back, extend the entire length of the cord, and separate it into two similar divisions. These are connected, however, along their entire length by a central band consisting of both gray and white matter. Figure 133 Figure 133 Spinal cord, showing on one side the nerves and ganglia with which it is closely related in function. A bulb. B. Cervical enlargement. C. Lumbar enlargement. D. Termination of cord. E. Nerve roots that occupy the spinal cavity below the cord. P. Pons. D. G. Dorsal root ganglia. S. G. Sympathetic ganglia. N. Nerve trunks to upper and lower extremities. The arrangement of the neurons of the spinal cord is just the reverse of that in the cerebrum the center being occupied by a double column of cell bodies, which give it a grayish appearance, while the fibers occupy the outer portion of the cord giving it a whitish appearance. The spinal cord is not uniform in thickness, but tapers slightly, though not uniformly, from the upper toward the lower end, that the places where the nerves from the arms and legs enter the cord to enlargements are to be found, the upper being called the cervical and the lower the lumbar enlargement. These, on account of the difference in length between the cord and the spinal cavity, are above the lower one considerably above the places where the limbs which they supply join the trunk figure 133. Arrangement of the neurons of the brain and cord. The cell bodies in the brain and spinal cord are collected into groups, and their fibers extend from these groups to places that may be near or remote, guided by the white and gray colors of the nervous tissue, and also by the structures revealed by the microscope. Physiologists have made out three general schemes in the grouping of cell bodies. 
as follows, 1. That of surface distribution. The cell body is forming a thin but continuous layer over a given surface. This is the plan in the cerebrum and cerebellum. And here are found devices for increasing the surface, the cerebrum having convolutions, the cerebellum transverse ridges. 2. That of collections of cell bodies into a rounded masses. Such masses are found in the bulb, the pons, the midbrain, and the base of the cerebrum. 3. That of arrangement in a continuous column. This is the plan in the spinal cord. It matters not at what place the spinal cord be cut. A central area of gray matter, resembling in form the capital letter H is always found. The fibers connecting with the cell bodies in the brain and spinal cord are gathered into bundles or tracts. And these pass through different parts somewhat as follows. 1. In the cerebrum they extend in three general directions, forming three classes of fibers. The first connect different localities in the same hemisphere, and are known as association fibers. Figure 134. The second make connection between the two hemispheres, and form the corpus callosum. These are known as commissural fibers. Figure 134. The third connect the cerebrum with the parts of the nervous system below, and are called projection fibers. Figure 134. 2. In the cerebellum both association and commissural fibers are found. Bands of fibers, passing upward toward the cerebrum and downward toward the cord, connect this part of the brain with other parts of the nervous system. Figure 134 Figure 134 Semi-diagrammatic representation of a section through the right cerebral hemisphere, showing fiber tracts. A. Association fibers. C. Commissural fibers. D. Projection fibers. The cell bodies with which the fiber bundles connect are in the surface layer or cortex. 3. In the midbrain bulb, and spinal cord fibers are found, first, that connect these parts with the cerebrum 101 and cerebellum above, second, that pass into and become a part of the nerves of the body, and third, that connect the opposite sides of these parts together, the peripheral division, the peripheral division of the nervous system includes all the nervous structures found outside of the brain and spinal cord, these consist of the cranial, spinal, and sympathetic nerves, and of various small ganglia all of which are closely connected with the central system, spinal nerves and dorsal root ganglia. The spinal nerves comprise a group of 31 pairs, which connect the spinal cord with different parts of the trunk, with the upper, and with the lower extremities. Each nerve joins the cord by two roots, these being named from their positions the ventral, or anterior, root and the dorsal, or posterior, root. The two roots blend together within the spinal cavity to form a single nerve trunk which passes out between the vertebrae. On the dorsal root of each spinal nerve is a small ganglion which is named, from its position, the dorsal root ganglion. Consult figures 133 and 135, and also figure 125, double nature of spinal nerves. Charles Bell, in 1811, made the remarkable discovery that each spinal nerve is double in function. He found the portion connecting with the cord by the dorsal root to be concerned in the production of feeling and the portion connecting by the ventral root to be concerned in the production of motion. In keeping with these functions, the two divisions of the nerve are made up of different kinds of fibers, as follows, 1. The dorsal root divisions, of the fibers of deaxonic neurons, the cell bodies of which form the dorsal root ganglia figure 135, 2. The ventral root divisions of the fibers of monaxonic neurons, the cell bodies of which are in the gray matter of the cord, the first convey impulses to the cord and are called afferent neurons, 100 to the second convey impulses from the cord and are known as afferent neurons, thus, 
by forming a part of the nerve pathways between the skin and the brain. The dorsal divisions of these nerves aid in the production of feeling, and by completing pathways to the muscles, the ventral divisions aid in the production of motion figures 129, 135, and 141. Figure 135 Figure 135 Connection of spinal nerves with the cord. On the right is shown a nerve pathway from the skin to the muscle. A division of this pathway reaches the brain. The cranial nerves, from the underfront surface of the brain, 12 pairs of nerves emerge and pass to the head, neck, and upper portions of the trunk. These, the cranial nerves, have names suggestive of their function or distribution and, in addition, are given numbers which indicate the order in which they leave the brain figure 136. And like the spinal nerves, the cranial nerves present great variety among themselves, scarcely any two of them being alike in function or in their connection with different parts of the body. Several of them have to do with the special senses, and are for this reason very important. They connect the brain with the different parts of the head, neck, and trunk, as follows. 1. The first pair olfactory nerves, nerves of smell, afferent connect with the mucous membrane of the nostrils figure 136. 2. The second pair optic nerves, nerves of sight, afferent connect with the retina of the eyes. 3. The third, fourth, and sixth pairs motors oculi control muscles of the eyes, efferent connect with the internal and external muscles of the eyeballs figure 136, figure 136 figure 136 diagram suggesting the distribution and functions of the cranial nerves Colton, see also figure 132, 4, the fifth pair trigeminal nerves, nerves of feeling to the face, of taste to the front of the tongue, and of control of muscles of mastication, efferent and efferent connect with the skin of the face, the mucous membrane of the mouth, the teeth, and the muscles of mastication. 5. The seventh pair facial nerves, control muscles that give the facial expressions, efferent connect with the muscles just beneath the skin of the face. 6. The eighth pair auditory nerves, nerves of hearing, afferent connect with the internal ear. 7. The ninth pair glossopharyngeal nerves, nerves of taste to back of tongue and of, 